This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm allergic to dogs. Some of you guys know this. And so I normally don't use dogs as an object lesson for anything because it just makes me want to sneeze. Uh, but honestly, there's a really great application we can have. If you've ever had a dog or you begun training a dog, I had one as a kid. And I remember the difficulty uh, with which we tried to teach our dog uh, how to stay. And for those who have ever had a dog, or if you have one, uh, you've gone through this time of how do I get my dog to stay? How do I get them to not move? How do I get them to obey the rules even when I'm not present? And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I think we have the tendency to, to, to assume that the way God gets us to, to, to stay is the same way. Maybe a, a better way to put it is that when God calls us to remain in him. We believe it's him calling us to stay the way we would tell a dog to stay. The American Kennel Center gives uh, real guidance on how to teach a dog to stay. They identify it with three D's. They say uh, to identify the duration of the time that you want the dog to stay, that you identify the distance at which you want to be away from the dog in order to make the dog stay. And then they say to give distractions for the dog. In, other, in, in many ways, to, to tempt the dog so that you can almost break the dog of its tendency to disobey so that it will indeed stay. In many ways, we assume that God is doing the same. And so keep those things in mind. Because when we walk through this, when we kind of go back through some of what Jen preached last week about what it means to remain in him, we want to we understand that remaining is not just passive. Remaining is indeed active. Remaining is something that we do. Remaining is not just something that we don't do. It's very different from the ways in which we would look at a dog. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But by way of review, here's where we are contextually. We're at the end of Jesus's life. He is nearing his uh, death. He's done his, uh, he's ending his lengthy discourse that had begun in chapter 14. <clears throat> and we're going to see it run all the way through this chapter, all the way through chapter 16. And then uh, two chapters uh, after that, we're going to see Jesus walk through his prayer for his disciples. And then we're going to see his, his betrayal and his arrest. But these, this chapter, 15, where Jen led us through last week, those first eight verses, they set the stage for these next roughly eight or nine verses, right? This, this next phase here, those earlier verses, they introduced this idea of abiding in Jesus, remaining. He says, remain in me. And then later verses continue that, that imagery, right? Remain. He's going to say in this verse, remain in my Love. So what I want us to see is how Jesus moves from remaining in me, remaining in the noun to remaining in my love, which he's going to show is not just a noun, but is actually a verb. In other words, there is an activity in the remaining. Remaining is not just this inactive thing. 
there is an activity in the remaining. So we're going to read John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. And we're going to really look at what it means to remain. What does it mean to be busy in the remaining or to be active in the remaining? John 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you're looking at this passage, are you able to to see the difference between remaining and just merely staying? Do we see the difference between remaining and merely staying? When you go back through what it means, as we looked at that, the three D's of, of teaching a dog to stay, it's, it can be very dangerous if we think that this is how God deals with us, right? Because there's this idea then, if we use, if we apply the three D's to God, here's how we'll think of them. We'll think, okay, duration. There's a period of time that I have to spend away from him. And this is the time that I have to be proved. And this is the time that I have to be tested. And this is the time that I have to show that, I'm, that I have the right stuff within. And then there's this idea that the only way for that to happen is for God to be far from us, to prove that we can do this on our own, right? That's why when Jen talked about remaining in the vine and how uh, we are never the source of the fruit, we're never the source of these good works. In many ways, though, we act as if that's exactly what God expects from us. God gives us this duration. We don't know how long that duration is. It can be any period of time. But the real part of that duration is the distance that God must have from us. We may not say he's distant, but we will behave and act as if he's distant. How do I believe that he's distant? Because I think that the fruit relies on me. I function as if the fruit relies on me. So I think so that way, in the same way with a dog, when the dog sees the owner return, and the, and the owner begins to praise the dog for staying in the midst of the distance that this dog had from its owner, the dog can feel affirmed and go, I pleased you. You are happy with who I was when you weren't close to me. So if we think that about God, we miss who he truly is. And then we get to this, this, this idea of, of distractions. And we will look at, in the same way that with a dog, what you'll do with the dog is, if you want to make sure that the dog will stay, You'll find reasons to tempt him, to tempt her, to not stay. 
So, you know, I was talking to Jen and she said growing up, what they would do is sometimes they would tempt the dog. They were kind of cruel. They would tempt the dog and have food in front of the dog's face and eating and chewing and playing and doing whatever just to get the dog tempted enough to be. And then what would happen? I'm guessing likely if the dog ended up breaking, they'd be like, no, 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 get back there and stay again. We think God functions that way. We think God is like, hey, watch what I'm going to do to them. And then hides behind a corner and chews on like our favorite chew toy to tempt us to go after it. And then afterward, we go running and we're like, what did you expect me to do? You knew that I would want that. And then God is like, it's time for me to break you. I tempted you to show you just how much breaking you need. And here you are. Go back and stay again. That is not what it means to abide. That is not what it means to remain. And we see that even as we look at uh, the first few verses in this in this passage, when you look at what Jesus says in verse nine, he says, as the father has loved me, I have also loved you remain in my love. You see him moving early on. He's been saying remain in me. And there is a passivity to a degree in remaining in Christ. Jen pointed that out. There is a passivity there. There is an inactivity there. What, What do I mean by that? The first acting agent in the changing of our hearts is Jesus. It's not us, right? He's gonna prove that later when he says that I've chosen you, you didn't choose me. The first acting agent. So there is a passivity in that something has to change our heart, soften our heart uh, to, to, to be able to become aware of our sin, to become aware of our brokenness, to become aware of our need for a savior. So in that way, yes, there is an inactivity. We don't even have to think about that. It's not even intentional. There is an, an, an inactivity. However, it doesn't end with inactivity. So when Jesus moves from remain in me <clears throat> and then remain in my love, this remain in my love. Here he is. Verse, first eight verses of this chapter. He's what Jen shared with us. He has shown us he is the vine grower. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. That's how he can say, remain in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself, unless it remains in the vine, neither can you, unless you remain in me, right? Verse four, he made that really clear. But here he is continuing and saying, in the same way that the father has loved me, I also love you. This is the relationship, these interrelationships that the father shows between the father, the son, and his disciples. We're seeing this this interrelationship over and over again. Now this word remain, Jen talked about this in great length last week. And when we talk about remain, this Greek word for remain, when he says remain in my love, we have to ask, what does it mean to remain in the love of Jesus? Now, this Greek word means dwelling in a particular place and staying there and abiding there. But it almost suggests the kind of peace and stability that you might even associate with with being at home or at the home of a hospitable friend. There's a safety in the remaining. There's not like, again, in that dog example, it's not like, oh no, master's getting ready to put me through the ringer. What's getting ready to come next? What temptation's getting ready to come next? What chew toy's coming next? This isn't that. There's this sense of safety. There's a sense of peace, which is why he emphasizes love in the remaining. The remaining is not emphasized by by this this uncertain uh, trepidation, this uncertain kind of foreboding sense that something might be coming. There's a sense of safety. There's a sense of real love. That's why he says love begins with the father and it flows through the son to the disciples. 
And then he says something about this that, that is also interesting and might even be off-putting for us. Because he says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So here, we're seeing on some level, our remaining in the love of Jesus is contingent upon our obedience. Now, I know that this can be really hard because we are so uh, afraid or so worried about, about being kind of wrapped up in what some would call works righteousness, right? This idea that I don't want to feel like that I'm evaluated by the good things that I do or the sins that I don't do, or I don't want to, you know, we, we've seen churches abuse that and use uh, these good works and, and these uh, uh, avoiding of sin as a way to almost kind of shame people into doing right. And so sometimes the pendulum swings the other way. And we're so afraid to even hint at some of that because of the damage that's been done that we miss what God, what the Father's love draws us into. We miss what it means to love him well. And so we miss what it means to hate sin, to battle sin, and to obey. Now please understand, the obedience is not what makes you a Christian. It's you being a Christian that leads you into obedience. The obedience is not what actually makes you get the fruit. The fruit itself is actually in the obedience. So we've said this before. In other words, obedience is never the root of your salvation. Jesus is. Obedience is the fruit of your salvation. So it is impossible for you to be rooted in Jesus. As Jen pointed out, it's impossible to be rooted in Jesus and not show fruit. It's impossible to be a Christian and not obey. That's part of the fruit of what it means to be tied to the vine. So when Jesus says, if you keep my commandments and you remain in my love, or if you, if you remain in my love, you will keep my commandments. That's what he means. He's saying that if you're rooted in me, then you're going to function and you're going to emulate and you're going to mimic and you're going to bear my image in every aspect of your life. That's what it means to obey. That's what it means to keep his commandments. So he gives us this model of obedience and he uses himself he tells us he came to do the will of the one who sent him. He said that in chapter four. He said that in chapter six. He said that in chapter eight. He keeps the father's word. He says that in chapter eight. He tells us that he's come to do the will of the father and he did it so that we might know that he loves the father. He said that in chapter 14. The father loves Jesus because he lays down his life in obedience to the father's command. He said that in chapter 10. So Jesus has been giving us the model the entire time. He's saying, my obedience is in response to my love for the Father. My obedience is not my way of, of, of creating love for the Father. My obedience is in response to the fact that I'm loved by him and that I love him. And then Jesus says, I promise to love you if you function the same way. I promise to love you as you keep my commandments. You know what this image kind of conjures up? It conjures up the image of kind of those nested dolls. I'm sure there's like a really cool name for them and I just cannot remember it, but those nested dolls where you've got like a little doll inside of a, a slightly bigger, slightly bigger, slightly bigger. And so you, you open it up and you open it up and there's these nested dolls that are there. 
it's, it's, almost, it's almost like that, right? Jesus invites us to obey so that we abide in him as he abides in the Father. And so there's this incredible picture of like, I'm abiding in Jesus and he has modeled to me what it looks like to abide because he abides in the Father. And therefore, I'm abiding in the Son and the Father. I'm abiding in God fully. So you see that Jesus is really not just saying that, that uh, what it means to love is not just taught, but what it means to love is also caught. It's something that is modeled. It's something that is shared. It's something that is shown. And it's something that is lived out. And so when you see what Jesus is saying, what it means to abide in him, this, this, this relationship is most complete when we keep his commandments. So this is why it's important for us to understand the connection between grace and obedience. They are not in opposition. They are not things that are diametrically opposed. They are in, a, in, in, a, in an inextricable marriage. You cannot know the grace of God and not understand what it means to obey him. Obey should not be a bad word. Obey should be something that we actually take great joy in doing. Why? Because it is a function of a love for us and a love from us. Where does that come from? It's initiated by Jesus. And now we are empowered to respond in kind. We've got to be rooted in that branch. We've got to be rooted in that vine. We are the branch. And it's vitally important that we understand that relationship and that we fully embody that. Then Jesus says, uh, uh, when, you, when you look uh, further, as he gets past verse 10, he gets into verse 11, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Again, you've got this nested relationship, this love that's nested back and forth, this joy that's nested back and forth. I love that he brings up joy, right? Because think about it. Typically, when we are called to obey something, we're not normally inclined to respond with joy because we're made to think, and part of it is just our nature, right? Being called to obey something that we are prone to stray from, that doesn't feel good. That, does, that can feel annoying. I see this with, I saw this with myself. We see this with kids. If they're not doing something, hey, you need to come back and do this, fine, okay. They're never doing ankle kicks and excited to go back and obey. That's just not normally how we function. But here, Jesus knows that we're gonna be that way. He knows that we're gonna have this knee-jerk reaction against obedience because our mind tells us that obedience is basically keeping us from something better when really obedience is calling us to what is best. And he knows that. And so he says, not only am I calling you to obey, but I've called you to these things. I've called you to keep my commandments so that my joy will be in you. So it's not going to be this, 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 this feeling, this dreadful, dreary, lockstep obedience, right? This begrudging, kind of frustrating uh, call, reminder, kind of browbeating into obedience. That's not what he's doing. He's saying that, that when you love me and my love is in you, it is joyful to keep these commandments. It is joyful to obey. It is joyful that there's a, there's a, this is beyond just a hollow joy. There's a, there's this, this idea that sometimes we think, we can often think that this call is almost this, like we said, a hollowed out kind of fake artificial joy. And sometimes we, we are experiencing artificial joy and we don't know it, right? 
We might think that the joy that's promised is this kind of like, okay, I might have some things around me that some surroundings that may be luxurious or maybe my appetites have been satisfactorily satiated. And, and I think that because those things have happened, that's enough joy for me. But the problem is that kind of joy dissipates. And joy that dissipates, that's the kind of joy that changes as soon as circumstances change. See, joy supersedes circumstances. Happiness is rooted in circumstances. The root word hap, happen, things that are happening in the moment that bring me some happiness or bring me joy or bring me positive feelings, that's happy. That's circumstantial. Joy isn't. Joy goes beyond that. So that when the good circumstances dissipate, there's still a, an abiding joy. That's the joy that Jesus promises. And joy, what Jesus says is the kind of abiding joy that is not circumstantial, that transcends circumstance. That kind of joy only happens when we're rooted in the love of the vine, when we're rooted in the love of Jesus. See, that is the joy. And the only way that we can see discipline as joyous and joyful is to be rooted in Jesus and to believe that what he calls us to is actually what will bring the best flourishing in our lives. That's why he's saying this. This isn't just uh, random parochial roles for people in the club. This is, this is what it means. Jesus is saying, when you abide in me, you will have your most best flourishing life. Not just circumstantial flourishing, but a deep spiritual flourishing. Which is why when he goes to verse 12 and he says, so this is my command, because you might say, okay, Jesus, you've been saying this. Jesus has said this before, right? Keep my commands, keep my commandment, keep my commandment. So then he reminds them, because he knows we're prone to forget, and he says, this is my command, in case you forgot. Love one another as I have loved you. That's just sound familiar. Because we've, he, he brought this up before, right? A few chapters earlier, he's already quoted, this is my command. Right? We, he's already kind of mentioned this before, but he goes further. Now, because before when he said, love one another as I loved you, we call that the platinum rule, right? Not just love people as you love yourself, but love people as I have loved you. There's that nested love again. You see that relationship again, that interrelationship. But now he's gonna qualify it further. He's gonna describe it further. And he's gonna say, this is my command. Love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. This is his commandment, to love others the way we've been loved. Everything else gets summed up in that. We talked about before how many times when we think, we, we sometimes kind of in, bring in and enter in other things into this command than Jesus intended, right? Because ultimately we will look at other commandments that might be in the Bible and go, well, this is the thing that we're focusing on now. And so that must be what Jesus means to the exclusion of loving other people. But Jesus already said the entire law is summed up in and he brought up what that greatest commandment was before, right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Then he even perfected that by giving this, love others the way I have loved you. This is my commandment. We cannot, I'm gonna say it because we've said it before, we've said it a lot, we will continue to say it. We cannot say that we love Jesus if we do not love our neighbor. And not only if we don't, we don't get to define how we love our neighbor, Jesus has already modeled it for us and he calls us to do the same. We don't have any other option. And so when he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you, 
That love, this is how we know that remaining is more than just staying and, and being passive. Because ultimately, he's calling you to do a verb. He's calling you to be active. He's calling us to do, not just to be. We are called to be, right? Our state of existing changes when we're in relationship to Jesus, but our state of doing changes as well. It's not enough to be something if you don't do it, because actually the doing proves the being. So you can say, so what Jen said last week, it's not enough to have Christian stamp next to my name. It's not enough for me to declare what I am without demonstrating what I am. So, so here Jesus is saying, if you truly love me, this is the proof. This is how it's known. This is how people will see it. This verb, this idea of love, agape love, right? This sense of almost sacrificing self for the good and well-being of another, giving of self for the good and well-being of another. Who did that? Jesus did that. That's why he can say greater love has no man than the one who would lay their life down for another. This is just kind of a restatement of Jesus's, that new commandment that he gave in chapter 13. And so here we're looking at this, this picture of love, right? This picture of agape love. It's, it's, you know, so often we mix up and we've said this before, English is hard because English is nowhere near as inclusive, as all inclusive in the language that the Greek and some of the older dead languages are. See, the Greeks had multiple words for love because they understood the complexity of human emotion. And so they had various words to describe certain degrees to which we feel closeness, emotional closeness, physical closeness. So there's different words for love. This word is something that goes beyond erotic love, brotherly love, right? Eros, philos, it goes beyond that. This goes into this like deep giving of ourselves for other people, regardless of whether we approve of their actions, regardless of whether or not they titillate our, our greatest sensitivities, they make us feel good, we like them, we enjoy their company. It, it, it really, it requires that we act on behalf of that person in order to demonstrate our love in a very practical fashion. So, so that love goes beyond just, I love you. It goes beyond just, you know what, I'm, I, you're getting on my nerves, but I love you anyway. It goes beyond that. You know, there's a really funny video that's going around and it's great, it's good art, it's funny, it's great, and don't wanna to go too deep into it, but there's this phrase, we probably have already seen it already, this video, try Jesus, but don't try me, because I throw hands. It's funny and we get the point that's, that's kind of brought out in that. But ultimately for the Christian, the only way that we can get to a place where we don't find ourselves kind of feeling like, you know what, I love you, but I don't love you that much. So don't ask me to love you, you better ask Jesus to love you. It's, it's funny, but ultimately biblically, we're actually called to something higher too. We're called to get to a place where we say, I, I'm still going to love you even if I disagree with you, or even if you uh, uh, frustrate me, right? This isn't a call necessarily to be a doormat. We're not saying that at all, but there's a degree to which I have to say, I still want to do what's possible to practically make sure that you're provided for. This is why an agape person will do what they have to do to feed the hungry, to give uh, water to the thirsty, to welcome the immigrant or the stranger, 
to clothe the naked, to visit the sick and the person in prison. Let me give you another example of what it might mean to love one another, right? Maybe even so that we push ourselves down to love another person. The Bible says to esteem others as higher than ourselves. It might mean pulling back or abrogating my own individual rights and my own individual freedom for the sake of the flourishing of others. That means if I feel like it is against my individual rights to possibly even be forced to put on a mask in order to protect others from possibly meeting a fatal end, then that means I move myself down and I exalt the others because that's what it means to be rooted in the vine. It means whatever I feel like I'm due, whatever it feels like I'm owed, I'm willing to give that up in order to be able to care for others. See, if we don't have that kind of mindset, then we actually are more rooted in our own self-love and not love for the neighbor. And that kind of love is not the love of Jesus. Again, it, it does no good then to hold up a Bible to put up posts on Facebook, to, to repost videos that shows that we love Jesus and we still are going, but my rights though, but my individual rights are pretty important. And so I'm gonna fight. I will fight harder for my rights than I will fight to love my neighbor. That can't possibly be rooted in the vine. It's rooted in a dead branch. This is why Jesus can say there's no love greater than this. Greater love, no, greater love has no one than this to lay their life down. Let me tell you something. Most of us aren't going to be in the position where we are physically giving our lives for folks, right? Most of us won't. And Jesus knows this. If you want to expand what this really means, it's really saying greater love has no, has no man or woman than this, that we would lay our very lifestyles down for our neighbor. There are things that I take great comfort in. There are things that I take great pride in. And in some ways, I've taken those things. They now have become a part of my identity. And sometimes they've become a part of my Christianity. And so when they are challenged, I fight as if I'm protecting my faith. But I'm really not. We do that a lot in America. We take multiple things. We combine it with our Christian faith. Then we like to call ourselves martyrs. Nothing proves artificial love than artificial martyrdom. It doesn't make any sense for us to create ourselves into this martyr. The only reason why we do it is because we've added things to what the actual gospel is. And then we say, well, I'm not going to do that because it's against my religion. I'm not going to do that because of freedom of religion. Actually, it's just freedom to be selfish. This greater love is what we're called to. We know this. In the ancient world, friendship was very important. And it operated at a number of levels. You had political friendship in which certain people were known as friends of the king, right? Friends of Caesar. So you had certain privileges because you were, you were afforded those privileges because of your close proximity to someone of great importance. Then you had this benefactor-client friendship. So, so in this way, you've got a wealthy person who would become the patron of someone who was less well-off. In, in, in many ways, they are like the sponsor of this less well-off Person. So again, you've got some proximity to this important person and they can vouch for you or speak for you. Then you've got mutual friendship, friendship among equals. This last category of friendship involved the sharing of confidences, the sharing of possessions, and even in extreme cases, the laying down one's life for a friend. 
So it can include life, but oftentimes it's our very lifestyle. Now, at this point, Jesus doesn't really understand. He doesn't, they, they don't, I'm sorry, the, the, the disciples don't really understand that Jesus is going to soon die for these men that he is now calling his friends. After the resurrection, they're going to finally understand the significance of these words. His love will require him to go to the cross for his friends. His commandment to love each other as he loved us is also going to require sacrifice. You see this, this nested thing again? Even Jesus' purpose in many ways is a nested purpose, and our purposes are nested in his. Jesus says, love like I loved, live like I've lived, sacrifice like I've sacrificed. This is the only way that shows if we truly are keeping his commandment. And so again, we know that 1 John 3.16 makes this same thing explicit. He says, by this we know love, right? He says this. This is how we know that Jesus loved us. How? Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. That, that's, that's it. In the same way that Jesus modeled what it means to give up his lifestyle and his very life for brothers and sisters, we're called to do the same thing. This is more than just staying put. Many of us are content to just be like a dog and just stay put. You know why? Because staying put means I don't really have to step outside of myself and love anybody. I can just stay and obey the master and the master will be pleased with me. Not this master. Because this is a master that says, not only am I your master, you're actually my friend. Which means, you know, in many ways, masters would just say, do as I say, and that's it. When I was in the military, you follow the chain of command. You don't ask the commander why the commands are coming. You don't even really have to know what's going on in the commander's heart. You just obey the rules and go. There's a mission that needs to come about. There's a mission that needs to be achieved. In order to achieve the mission, you don't ask questions. I don't have to care what's in his heart. I don't have to know what's happening in his family. I just have to obey the rules. But that's not what friends do. Jesus says, I love you so much that I not only give you rules that you do have to obey like a servant, but I'm going to give you my heart. So you're going to get my motivations. The same motivation I have to honor and glorify the father, you're going to get that motivation. So when you feel like you're frustrated and you don't know how to love somebody well to the point where you want to tell them you can't even try me no more. Just go try Jesus. I'm done showing the love of Jesus to you. Let him deal with you directly. Jesus says, if you have my love within me and within you and you have my spirit within you, I will empower you to love the people that you think are unlovable. I will give you the power to put, push your own things down. The things that you think are important. I will teach you and show you that they're less important than loving your neighbor. It's interesting when you see, again, this language of love, the most, one of the most famous ones we know, right? We talked about this months ago. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is such an incredible, dare I say, godly coincidence, right? 1 John 3, 16 and John 3, 16, both talking about love, both talking about what it means to lay our lives down. We see this earlier. Remember when Thomas said to the other disciples, hey, let's all go to Jerusalem so we can die with him? Remember? Because that's what we'll do. We'll use language and say, hey, let's go die with him too. It was clear that Thomas didn't have a whole lot of enthusiasm for sacrifice. Peter later said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. But when the time came, Peter denied Jesus. What do we see here? Talk is cheap. Love is costly. This is the kind of love that costs us something. 
it costs Jesus something. And if our purposes are rooted in his, and our mindset is rooted in his, and our motivations are rooted in his, then ultimately we cannot love without real sacrifice. So let me ask you, what does loving sacrifice look for you right now? How does that look for you? Who are you loving? How does your love look? Is it love on your terms? Is it love as long as you're comfortable? Is it love as long as certain things are met on your, on your behalf? Or is it love that says, I'm willing to even push some things that, are, that, that I might find to be important. I'm able to push those to the side in order to continue to love them well. Y'all, this is not intuitive. This is not easy. It's not even human because our human nature is so broken and fallen that our, our default position doesn't work this way. So there's something else that has to happen. Something has to change. Something has to give us real life in these dead branches. This is what it means to be rooted in the vine. So when he says, you're my friends, he says, you are my friends. Now there's this philo, this word from which we get phileo, this word from which we get brotherly love or friendly love. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you to do. In other words, if you keep that great commandment, I told you, you're my friends. You're more than just a servant. You're more than just, I'm just following orders. You're more than just, because listen, there are plenty of people who have done horrendous things because they were just following orders. He's saying, you're more than that. You are my friends if you continue to keep this command to love others the way that I love you. That's, you're more than just my servant now. I share my heart with you. I share my mindset with you. You see this earlier. He, he's been implying up to this point that they're, that they're, uh, that his servants for sure. He's, it's not to say that we still don't serve Christ. He's implied that earlier, right? If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. A servant is not greater than his Lord, neither uh, one who is sent greater than he who sent him. We, Jesus has been saying all the way, it's not that we are less than servants, but because of our love for him and his love for us, we are more than servants. We are friends. There's no shame in, in, in being uh, God's servant. They identify themselves in the Old Testament as God's servant. Moses in Deuteronomy, Joshua, David, Paul and Titus, James, they all refer to themselves as servants. Jesus acted as a servant to the disciples at the foot washing. There's no shame in that. But he elevates our status from not just being servants now, but being friends. He says, I've called you friends. Everything I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. That's how he defines real friendship. That's a whole other sermon to think about what real friendship is and the sharing of truth with one another. Even the sharing of our intentions with one another. Some of the deepest friendships are when we share all of who we are with one another. And Jesus does that. He says, everything that I've heard from the Father, the things that I've been able to share with you, I've shared with you. I've not just given you commands. I've given you the very heart of the Father. But again, that friendship is contingent upon our obedience. And we see the connection. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. There's this connection with the gracious love of Jesus and our obedience to him. That's why he says, I don't call you servants anymore because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made, I've made known everything to you that I heard from the father. Then he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. 
You didn't choose me, but I chose you. This is also such a big point here. And we have to understand this contextually, right? Throughout the time, Jesus would have been known as a rabbi, this Jewish teacher that a lot of Jewish followers are following, and he's a bit of a radical to the other Jewish leaders, but nonetheless, he's still a teacher. He has followers, right? You need to understand, we need to understand, that when you were a rabbi, the way that you acquired students, uh, most of the time, rabbis didn't go out and pick out students. Students heard about who the rabbis were, and they went out after the rabbis. They wanted to choose them to be their teacher. Rabbis didn't just walk around and go, hey, you want to jump on board? That didn't normally happen that way. These rabbis were mentoring students who were preparing for the rabbinate, right? They were, they were looking forward to becoming rabbis themselves, these prospective students. They would go out and seek rabbis to be their, their mentors. So the greater the rabbi, the more students would seek his, his assistance. Jesus, however, does something different. He's like, y'all didn't even know enough to know how to seek out the right kind of rabbi. You, you, wouldn't, you didn't even know enough to know to come after me, but here's what, how my love works with you. My love says, I don't even wait for you to recognize how much you need me. My love works in such a way that I'm willing to go after you. I'm willing to pursue you. I chose you before you ever chose me. Again, that was kind of the passivity on your part, on our part. We didn't choose him. He chose us. And he's reminding them. He already said, you're my friends. But guess what? You were my friends because I chose you to be my friend before you ever chose me to be your friend. I chose to love you before you chose to love me. And not only did I choose you, it's not enough to just say, great, I'm chosen. I can post up in his bosom and be good. It's beyond that. He says, I chose you, but I didn't just chose you. I didn't just choose you just to be close to me. I didn't just choose you just to be in close proximity. I didn't just choose you so that we can show up in a lot of our selfies or what do they call them? Ussies. I didn't, you know, I didn't just come up so that we can have our little stick and take our little picture together. It's more than that. He says, I want you to be more than just in the picture with me. I've actually chosen you for a purpose. I've chosen you so that you can actually go out and do. It's not just be my friend. It's not just be, it's actually do and behave like my friend, uh, perform like my friend because you've been transformed into my friend. So now you can perform. Perform isn't bad necessarily if it's rooted in real sincerity. So, so now you've got it. He's like, I've appointed this, this special word here. As he goes in, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. There's a purpose in our lives. This is so important. If you just think that the primary reason why Jesus loves you is just to keep you safe, is just to protect you from heaven, just to make sure he can rescue you when he returns, we are missing the real purpose, right? The Greeks had a word for purpose, the end. This, this idea of telos or teleos, we have a study of it, teleology, right? There's a teleological purpose, there's a, tele, a teleological reason for our existence. Our purpose is to actually bear fruit. Our purpose into becoming the friend of Jesus, our purpose into being reconciled, our purpose in being redeemed is not just so that we can just stay and be his friend. 
Our purpose is so that we can actually be empowered and released to bear fruit. What does it mean to go and bear fruit? You know, he doesn't specify the fruit here, but he just says we are appointed, elected, chosen to bear fruit, the fruit that God endows them. That's how a vine works, right? The branches have no say in what fruit comes off of them. The branches are completely rooted in whatever the root itself is. If it's an orange tree, the branches are going to bear oranges. So, so if it's an apple tree, the branches are going to bear apples. Whatever that vine dictates, that's the fruit that we show. So he doesn't, he's, he's not uh, specific, but he realizes that some of us are called to various things. Our fruit's going to look different here or there, but there's some objective fruit that should be true of all of us. If we are to produce fruit for Christ, then it's important that we seek his will for our lives. So we let him direct our appointment. He says, he says this, not only does he say, I've appointed you to bear fruit, but that your fruit will remain. See, a, a, a fruit, a branch that's truly rooted in the vine, that's fruit that will remain. Some people are called uh, to, to, to build or to produce reports that'll be good for a few weeks. Others build cars that are gonna last a few uh, years. But others build houses that will last for decades. Christ appoints disciples to bear fruit that will last for centuries, for eternity, forever. And that's how he ties it in and says, when all of that happens, when that's true, when our hearts are knitted into the heart of Jesus and our purposes are knitted in the purposes of Jesus and our sacrifices are rooted in the sacrifices of Jesus, then anything we ask of the Father in his name, he will give to us. Earlier, he said this before, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask whatever you desire, it'll be done for you, right? In verse seven, he said that before in verse seven. Jim brought that up. He said that before, he's constantly making this point. If you abide in Jesus, if we remain in Jesus, then this is when we can say, well, if I'm remaining in him and my motivations are rooted in his, then my prayers are gonna be rooted in the things God wants. The things I pray for will be rooted in the things that are reflective of his heart. And finally, when he says, I command these things to you, this is what I command you, love one another. This is a restatement again of what he said in verse 12. But, it, but a little bit of an interesting twist, right? In verse 12, Jesus commands us to love. But verse 17, he says, these commands enable us to love each other. There's a great synergy here. There's an intertwining of the elements that feed each other. The father loves the son and the son loves us and invites us to abide in his love. Verse one, we keep his commandments and we abide in his love. Verse two, <clears throat> and we experience this complete kind of joy. Verse three, this joy fills our hearts, drives out the poisonous feelings that would otherwise make it difficult to love our neighbor. Try Jesus, but don't try me. That gets pushed out. And then we know now, how do we do it? Because we know this neighbor is still an image bearer of our father. Therefore, we love them and it helps us to love them. So God's love, Jesus's love, our love, our abiding in Christ and our keeping of the commandments change us in ways that enable us to love those imperfect souls with whom we rub elbows every day, to love them, warts and all. And it's a miracle because it only happens if we're rooted in the vine. So do you love him? Are you loved by him? Then do we love those who are made in his image? That's what we're called to do.
That's how Jesus loved us. And that's, that's how he empowers us to love others. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all of the ways that you continue to impress your heart upon us. God, I'm thankful that you did not just give us uh, seemingly empty and hollow words, empty and hollow laws, empty and hollow rules. I'm so thankful that you have clarified your purposes and your heart through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for all the ways that you show us what it means to love well. Thank you for choosing us, for calling us, for breaking us, remaking us, and teaching us what it means to love well. Thank you for giving us, taking our faulty motivations, taking our faulty heart postures, and replacing them with yours. God, I pray that as we know, this is a, a life cycle. This happens throughout our entire lives. So God, continue to root those things out, continue to prune us. And Lord, I pray that our greatest motivation, yes, we wanna glorify you, but I pray that we would see the evidence of the fruit in the ways in which we love our neighbor so that we don't have to create our own checklists. We can rest well and abide in yours. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this benediction from God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people, all of God's family, all of those that love him said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.